0: Morning BCC, we're continuing our series called Beatitudes Attitudes and we are on the fifth beatitude uh, this week, Uh, blessed are those uh, who show mercy for they will receive mercy, blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy, I want to open uh, with a story this morning uh, from my scouting past, you may not have known this but I was a scout between the ages of 9 and 13, uh, 9 and 14, something like that. And uh, one particular weekend, I had an opportunity with uh, two other scouting friends of mine to go and do some camping and earn those badges uh, up on the sleeve. You know how scouts collect badges for different things that they prove competency in. So I went off on this weekend, and uh, we were camping on some land Uh, It was arranged for us by our scoutmaster, who was a man called Mr. Stubbings, and Mr. Stubbings was an excellent uh, scoutmaster, really good fun. Um, He organized this trip for us with a local landowner uh, who had this stately home and all this land, and he was a judge. Uh, He was called Judge Glazebrook, and uh, we went on this weekend... And uh, so we got there kind of like, it was kind of Friday night, Saturday night, Saturday night kind of thing. And uh, on the Friday afternoon, I was very enterprising and I cut down some trees and I made like a kind of a, 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 like a, sort of a shelter. And we put our tarpaulin underneath the, uh, the shelter and put a tarpaulin over the top and we slept in there for two nights. And uh, on, on the Friday night, I also found like a piece of slate and uh, I, I thought it'd be great to try a piece of slate as like a kind of hot plate over a fire. And so we got some bricks, and we built a fire, and then we had the, the slate there, and uh, we put our pans on it, and we were trying to cook some stuff. And then, unfortunately, what happened with the slate was that the uh, you know, slate's kind of gray and in layers, isn't it? And uh, different layers heated up at different times, and it started shattering and exploding and sending bits of slate everywhere. So just in case you were ever want- wanting to cook on a piece of slate, it kind of... I think you can heat it a little bit, and then after that it starts, to, uh, it starts to break up in quite a dramatic way. So I wouldn't recommend you use slate. So the, the camping weekend kind of came and went, and I, and, I, and I came home. And then in the middle of the following week, uh, there was a knock at the door of our family home, uh, and Mr. Stubbings was at the door. And uh, I was really pleased to see him, and I was like, great, you know, he's going to come and tell me about a badge or something that I've won. And, and I was sent upstairs. Uh, And uh, when I was sent upstairs at home, I don't know about you, but that meant I was in trouble And and something bad was coming later on later on And uh, so I went upstairs and and Mrs. Stubbings and my mum and dad had this chat And then I was invited downstairs And then my mum said to me, "Um, so uh, did you cut down some young trees as part of your camping? Uh, And I said, well, yeah, I did and, uh, and she said, did you uh, also use some, like, some slates to try and cook some food on I said, well, yeah, I, I did that too. And she said, well, Judge Glazebrook is hopping mad. He is hopping mad. Now, in Eng- if, you don't, if English is not your first language, hopping mad means really, really angry, like super furious about this. Um, those young trees were, were like saplings that he was growing for a specific purpose. And you've come along and you've used your bow saw and you've cut them down, and he is very angry about that. And those those bits of slate, they were for a repair job on his roof, and you've just used them on the fire, and they've blown up, and and he's really cross about that as well. So I said to my mum, oh, "Oh, wow, I'm really really sorry, mum." You know, and she said, "You're going to ha- Mr. Stubbings has come round because he wants you to write a sorry letter to Judge Glazebrook." So. I'm thinking, right, I need to write this sorry letter. So I, uh, I get my fountain pen out. Remember them? And I write a letter to Judge Glazebrook. And I, I say to him how sorry I was. And I didn't realize I was doing anything wrong, but I'm really sorry for cutting down your young trees. I'm really sorry for using your slate. Um, you know, I hope the scouts can maybe use your land again, but I'm really, really sorry. So I did that. And then about a week later, I'd, I'd love to be able to say I'd got the letter from Judge Glazebrook to show you, but, you know, I'm one of these people that kind of moves on from letters, and kind of six months in, I kind of have a clear out, and I keep up to date on my stationery and my correspondence, and that is all gone many, many years ago. But Judge Glazebrook wrote me a letter to the effect of, thank you, Nick, for your letter. Apology accepted, and uh, don't worry about the trees, don't worry about the slates. We will have a chat with you, with, you, with you as scouts and work out a place where you can come and camp where you know where you stand, where you know you can use all the resources in that area but not outside the area and that's a fair way of resolving this. Uh, and then he said, nice handwriting and thank you for a great apology young man. Judge Glazebrook at the end. So that was kind of like one of my early experiences of somebody showing me some mercy Uh, I'm not really sure what Judge Glazebrook would have done had he not shown me mercy. I don't know whether he had the power to throw me in prison or anything like that, but I didn't want to find out. He was a judge, and he had serious weight in the community, and I'd done the wrong thing. But I said sorry, and he showed me mercy. You know, judgment is getting what you deserve. It's being punished for doing the wrong thing and getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Judgment is getting what you deserve when you've done the wrong thing. Mercy is not getting what you deserve when you've done the wrong thing. And I want to open with that story because it sets us up to understand where we're heading with this idea of mercy in the fifth beatitude. Um, So over the uh, previous few weeks, we started on the 5th of September, um, we started with, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, from Matthew chapter 5 verse 3 and then on the 12th of september um our second kind of lockdown service that we had um we we looked at blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted and we discovered slightly to my surprise and i think probably to yours too that that wasn't about mourning the loss of a person it was about mourning a spiritual state on the inside of us mourning our own spiritual sin our own spiritual brokenness and then um uh, on the 19th of September, we looked at blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And we shared that story about that, uh, that runner from Djibouti that ran around the stadium with a twisted foot and was prepared to come last in front of 80,000 people. Do you remember that? And then last weekend, we were blessed with a couple of visiting speakers, uh, one from the Evangelical Alliance and one from Tier Fund. Who they, and they spoke to us about the, uh, the, the, the fourth Beatitude Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. But today, we're continuing on to Beatitude number five. Beatitude number five says Blessed are the merciful, because they will be shown mercy. If we are merciful to other people, mercy will come back to us. As God has shown us mercy, so we should show mercy to others. This is the teaching that Jesus wants to bring. Um, I'm going to go into a parable in just a minute. Uh, If you would turn with me uh, in your Bibles or on your devices to Matthew chapter 18, verse 23. Um, you can also follow this along in the version app notes that we sent out. Uh, for those of you who are watching on the live stream, the app notes uh, link is always just below the description on YouTube and in Facebook, so you can click that directly from there. And for those of you who are in the building, y- you can do the same thing, you can click that. If you ever lose the link, uh, you can just go into u-version, go to events and look up local events to you and you will find our messages there. Um, And all the notes from today are just there, and I just really encourage you to interact with that content and make your own notes and keep that uh, for your future reference. Now, Jesus' teaching uh, consists of some sermons that he gave uh, and and lots of direct teaching, and we see a big piece of his, centerpiece of his teaching in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, but he also spoke in stories. He taught through stories called parables. Now, does anyone here uh, remember back to their school days when in maths, you were given a piece of graph paper, and you had to draw the trajectory of something being thrown in the air. Ever remember that? Like a kind of, it's like a curve, isn't it? It goes up in the air, and then it comes down. That's called a parabola. Uh, and that, if you throw like a stone into a, into a lake, that will go up in the air, and then it will come down. That's a parabola. And actually, the word parable um, comes from just the same Greek root source word. And it means throw alongside. And so what we're looking at, what, what Jesus does with, te- with teaching through parables is he takes a spiritual truth, and then he throws a story alongside it, and then when you hear the story, you go, ah, I understand what you're trying to say, Jesus, because I can step into the story safely. You're not attacking me. You're just telling me a story, but I get the deal here. And then afterwards, we step back into the reality, and then sometimes we go, oh, ouch, that was, that was for me. I need to pay attention to that. That's, the, that's how a parable works. Uh, So, yeah, just wanted to uh, explain that. So let's read from Matthew chapter 18, uh, the the parable of the unforgiving servant. It's it's, it's a teaching from Jesus about forgiveness, but it's done so from the point of view of somebody being very unforgiving. You with me so far, BCC? Yeah? You seem quiet this morning. You can shout amen if you want to. That's great. Okay. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you. Okay. The servant's master had pity on him, cancelled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother and sister or sister from your heart. I don't know what your initial reaction is when you read a story like that. And I know that some of us are very familiar with the parables of Jesus. But I think a reaction is like, wow, you know, servant, you really got that wrong. You've received the cancellation of a particularly large debt here. And then yet, straight away after that, you've gone out and found someone who owes you something much, much less, and you've choked them and made loads of demands on them, and you've insisted that the debt be repaid. Uh, Now, I got into the commentaries and the the, the study Bible uh, uh, remarks. You know, if you get a study Bible, it gives you information down the side that's really helpful. And uh, one of the study Bibles I looked at uh, mentioned this business of the 10,000 talents of gold being something like one billion days of farm labor. Now, a billion days of labor, that's, that's well, nobody's ever going to pay that off in their lifetime. I don't know what that would be in terms of number of lifetimes, but it's a very large number. You cannot pay that off. And then, so he has that cleared, that debt, and he's got this huge grace given to him, and he's got this enormous mercy from this, uh, this master on behalf of the, uh, the king. And then he goes out and he finds somebody, and he's really kind of, shaking them down and he wants the hun- effectively a hundred silver coins was like a hundred days of labor and he wants that he wants it he- and and so we're we're listening to this story and we're going hold on a minute there's a big mismatch here have you not understood what god you know what the king has done for you and by implication jesus is teaching us have you not understood what god has done for you in forgiving you from the debt of sin that's what's going on here let me give you some key teachings of what this parable is trying to tell us in terms of spiritual understanding. The first thing is that, number one, is that we owe a massive debt to a holy and righteous God. We do, because we are sinful people. We get stuff wrong. We have wicked stuff going in our, in our minds. We do the wrong thing. Uh, we can get into colossal difficulties through our own sinful nature, and there's no way we can pay that all back to God. We can't. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a bit like thinking, "Well, I'll climb to the top of Everest to try and appease God, and then finding that God's on the moon." It's never gonna—you're never gonna get there. Now, and I appreciate we invented rockets, so maybe that analogy breaks down. But in terms of your own strength, you are not gonna make it back. You're not gonna make it that far, are you? Number two is that we're completely unable to pay such a huge debt back. That debt is enormous, and in front of a holy and a righteous God. We don't stand a chance. That 10,000 talents of gold represents just how much, how far short we fall of the glory of God, of, of God's holy standards and his righteousness. So number one is we owe a massive debt to a holy and righteous God. And number two, we're completely unable to pay that debt back. But number three, God is very merciful and gracious to us in not demanding the payment due. He's so gracious to us. He says, I can see that there is no way that you are going to be able to pay this off, and so I'm going to cancel it off. I'm going to take the steps to remove that debt from you because there's no way that you can live with that. And the way that he does that is truth number four, which is that God's provision of his son, Jesus, in going to the cross is the thing that pays off all the debt, that's what Jesus does for us when he goes to the cross. He pays off the debt of our sin. And there are many, many people around you in this room right now who would know that that's a truth that they have experienced, that in following Jesus, they felt a lifting and a lightening of that enormous 10,000-talent debt off their backs because they now know that they are free before God. Amen? Truth number five, and this is the kicker. This is kind of like the one where, you know when Jesus tells a parable and you suddenly go, oh, ouch. That was for me. This is the one. What God does for us needs to transform our hearts so that it becomes what we do for other people. So when God does something for us on the inside, we need to respond and go, wow, that's a really big deal. I need to do that for other people in my life. And that's what the un- unmerciful or unforgiving servant doesn't do. He gets a great big gift from God, and then he goes out, and it's like his, tr- his heart hasn't received the enormity of what's, what's been done for him, and he does, he does nothing about it and for you and I what we need to do is we need to respond to the size of what God has done for us by saying to ourselves no I need to take that on board you know we have a, a mission statement here of, of transformed lives transforming lives when God does something in you that then needs to turn into something y- you do for other people does that make sense and you with me on this so far yeah you follow th- follow this through so this is where we then circle full back to the fifth beatitude because blessed are the merciful because they shall be shown mercy. That's an outworking of who Jesus is. And what I'm, beca- what I'm coming to appreciate in this Beatitude series is that Jesus is teaching us about himself. Each of these Beatitudes is, hey, hey and it doesn't do it arrogantly at all. He just says, hey, this is me, and as you uh, kind of connect with me, as you're influenced by me, as, I, as you follow after me, these are some of the qualities you are going to get And then this is how you are going to be blessed. And then this is how all the people around you are going to be blessed because of me. Because I am merciful. Because I'm merciful, you can be merciful. You can show people mercy. You don't have to bring out the judgment guns and say, well, you need to pay for that thing that you did. You can say, no, I'm going to copy Jesus and I'm not going to make that person pay for whatever it was that they did. This is how this works. Now, I want to take you on a bit of a journey and delve a little bit deeper into mercy. I think mercy lives very, very deeply on the inside of the heart of God. I think it's really close to his heart. Now, he's a God of holiness and righteousness, and he brings judgment because without judgment, we don't have justice and we need justice in this world don't we there are some dreadful things that happen and we need to know that God is going to be dealing with that in the fullness of time and sometimes he does that through courts and police forces and law and order and all those kinds of things and we need that but at the same time as that he's also a God of mercy and both are true at the same time we have a God of judgment and holiness and righteousness on the one hand but we have a God who loves us so much on the other that he wants us to have mercy in order that we are let off from all of the uh, outworking of the wrong stuff we, we do all the time. Let's go on a bit of a journey here. Um, something that we regularly comment on in staff team is that this building is built like a tank. It is so strong. Um, I think Ian, I don't know if Ian, our ops manager's here. You hear Ian? Yeah, he's right at the back. Ian has regularly broken drill bits trying to put things up in the building. The building is super strong, so I hope that gives you confidence. Um, It's very well made. It didn't always start like that in the history of the people of Israel with their place of meeting. And in fact, their place of meeting started out as something flimsy. It was actually a tent. It was all canvases and tents and skins and so on. It was a place called the tent of meeting. Now, don't be wrong-footed. It wasn't like my tarpaulins that I threw over Trees I shouldn't have cut down. This was beautifully made. And the craftsmanship was exquisite. And the detail that the, the, the Lord went into to make sure that the tent of meeting met his standards was very, very high. Um, and so there was a, the, the tent of meeting had like a kind of an outer perimeter that was about kind of 45 meters long. Um, and then inside the tent of meeting, there was like a, a covered area, like a, an inner tent. And this was split into two parts. And the first part was called the holy place and it had the bread of the presence and it had a that sort of uh, seven-leafed candelabra uh, and that was lit and so on and then there was a veil uh, or a curtain that then shielded off an even greater place of holiness a place of even uh, deeper sanctuary where God's presence was and that was called the most holy place and it was so holy to the people of Israel that it was not possible for anybody to go in there except once a year and it was only possible for the ordained high priest to go in there once a year. You couldn't just wander in there. Now, we have access to, uh, to, you know, to things in our church. You, you know, When the pandemic lifts, I'm really hoping that you can all come to the front and have prayer. We're not doing that right now. But you can have access and permission. And in the Old Testament, that was not the case. So the sins of the people would build up over the year, and then the the high priest would take um, a a lamb, uh, like like a, a newborn sheep, he would take a lamb that didn't have any defects, he would sacrifice that in the area outside, then he would take that in, and then he would progress in from the holy place into the most holy place, and he would take some of the blood of that lamb, and he would sprinkle it on the altar that was there. So I'm trying to give you a picture of the kind of the idea behind uh, where worship or how worship worked uh, in the Old Testament. So I'm going to ask uh, the media team to uh, put a a picture up on the screen. Um, Now this is like a graphic of the Ark of the Covenant. This was an, an item that was in the most holy place. It was the most holy thing that the people of Israel had. It was made of acacia wood and it was covered in beaten gold. Uh, all over it. Now, in the bottom section of the Ark of the Covenant, there were three objects in there. There were the, t- there were the, the pair of tablets of the Ten Commandments that had been given by Moses uh, by God to Moses up on the mountain, sorry. Um, so, we had the Ten Commandments there, and then we have a rod made of almond wood that belongs to Aaron, and that symbolized, it, symbolized him as a shepherd over the people like a priest. Now that rod was very special because a miracle had happened where it had sprouted leaves and then flowers and then uh, and then almonds really fast and so they kept that because it was a very and I'll come on to why that happened in just a minute and then we have a pot a gold pot of manna and manna was bred miraculously provided by by God to the people of Israel in the wilderness when they were wandering around and had no food. These three things were kept inside the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place and they represented miracles that God had done for the people of Israel. Now, in my studies for trying to understand this a little bit more, and I don't know about how you've, you've received these three objects and pondered them in your mind, I've always thought of them as, well, these are, these are miracles from God. You know, the Ten Commandments was, was inscribed by the finger of God himself on the stones and, and then presented to Moses and he comes down. That's a, you know, that's a, that's a miracle right there. Nobody, no human being manufactured that that was created for, for people by God and, and delivered by Moses and then the, uh, the, 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 the budding of the staff that's just a, an incredible miracle of speeded up growth to show that God is behind the person who owns that staff and then the manor is provision in the desert and you know we heard Sam today talking from India about provision for those COVID patients out in India 18,000 meals I mean that's just that's absolutely awesome I was so pleased to hear that. The feeding of the 18,000 in India, come on, it's a modern day miracle, I just love that. So, these things have kind of come along and they're miracles from God, but here's the insight today. They represent God's responses to sin. They actually represent God's responses to sin. Now, why do I say that? I say that because the Ten Commandments are God's definition of his holy standard for a people who've fallen away from that standard. Aaron's rod budding in that way and having leaves and then flowers and then almonds so quickly was a response to a horrible rebellion that broke out in the people of Israel where a a faction appeared and said, we don't want you as uh, our leaders, Moses and Aaron, you're not right for us. We want to take control. And so God said, right, to establish who is actually in charge, I want each of the 12 tribes of Israel to come and lay their particular rod uh, down and we will watch to see who has the, the anointing. And then Aaron's rod from the priest of Levi, he is, the, uh, he is the ordained guy, and his rod buds, and all the others do nothing because they're still dead. But that miracle happened in response to a sin of rebellion. And then we have, in, uh, we have the manna being provided in the desert as a response to grumbling from the people of Israel. And they grumble because they're not back in Egypt in slavery having hot stew. And you're thinking, hold on a minute, you've just been set free and you're grumbling about not being in slavery because of hot stew. Really? Do you not want your freedom a bit more than that? And so each of these items that are inside that box represent not just favor and miracles from God, but they're necessitated by the sin of people. Now we get to the interesting bit. Above the box is a place called the mercy seat. And a slab of solid gold was physically hammered out over the top of this this wood, and that's called the mercy seat. And with that in place, it would not be possible for God to see the sins that are inside the ark. It's not possible to view them because they're covered. And when the high priest would go in once a year and sprinkle the blood of the lamb, God would look at that and say, a sacrifice has taken place, therefore that is now wiped out, and I do not see those sins anymore. I see the perfect sacrifice that has been carried out and I will let the people of Israel off they will go free do you understand and follow the ark of the Covenant and the significance of what goes on here and so what then happens is that the glory of the glory of God descends to that place between the two cherubim which are the angelic beings who are made of solid gold as well and they represent witness they represent that this has been seen and verified before God and 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 you people are now classed as as clean and whole before me this is the Old Testament setup to what then happens with Jesus on the cross let me take you to uh, the next slide please guys That hammered gold that's on the top of that Ark of the Covenant was beaten out flat. It was hit with a hammer a lot of times. It was stretched out over that acacia wood. Does that remind you of anything? How about Jesus? Jesus, our solid spiritual gold, stretched out, hammered over some wood, taking our sins on himself, the blood sprinkled from his own body coming down on the people who would follow him. You see, what happens is with Jesus is that Jesus is our living, walking mercy seat, BCC. He shed his own blood, and he has become the person who hides the things that we do wrong because we may not have done the things that the people in the Old Testament did, but we have a whole lot of stuff in our ark, in our locker, that we wouldn't want to show up on a video screen. We have a whole lot of stuff that we've got wrong. We've had a whole lot of things that we've thought and said and done that we wished we hadn't done. And they're tucked away and we really, really didn't want God to see them. But God can see everything. God is holy and righteous and God is coming with judgment and fire. And there needs to be a means by which that gets dealt with. And the way it gets dealt with today is that Jesus goes to the cross and pays the price and becomes the mercy seat and his blood... Settles over us And we are made clean We are righteous I'm going to ask our worship team to come up And just to start playing This is so important Jesus is our mercy seat He is the person who takes over from that mercy seat There was a physical uh, uh, item in the Old Testament and, but, but he does something more than this This is not something that can only happen once a year This can happen at any time you can take a sin to Jesus at 3 o'clock in the morning and you can pray a prayer and you can say, Jesus, I am really sorry that I did that today. And Jesus isn't going to make you wait a whole year with the rest of the people of Israel uh, and, the, uh, and the sacrifice of a lamb and all of that for that to, to be sorted out. He takes that straight away because of what he did in the cross on the past and he says, you are forgiven. You are set free. That 10,000 bags of gold debt that you're carrying is now gone. Gone and you are made whole and righteous and pure and clean before me. You know, BCC, one of the things I want you to know as you walk out of here today is that what Jesus has done on the cross has made you pristine before God. You are pristine and spotless and blameless before God. I don't know what your heart felt like when you came in this morning. Uh, Sometimes those days where I feel not so great are the days I know I need to come to church. Now I'm a minister, I have to come to church. But I, I got into this because I just love that Jesus cleans me up. I need it so, so badly. I need it minute to minute sometimes, never mind just on a weekend. I need Jesus' as cleansing power on the inside of me. Now, here's something that I just, I just think is so beautiful. There was a, a scholar called Derek Prince, and he was the person who came up with this idea, or he had this insight of the hammered gold of Jesus being beaten out flat. On a cross, being so similar to this, the mercy seat of the Old Testament, and that gold covering the sins of the people. BCC, would you stand me? Would you stand with me, please? We are going to respond to this message in worship, and we're going to worship Jesus, our great High Priest, who has the capacity to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. It's him that can. He is the master of the parable of the unforgiving servant. He is the one that signs off the debt. He is the one that provides the cleansing power